Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life so that we can wake up from accidental living and more fully live inspired together. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I want to invite you to listen to my previous episodes of the Live Inspired podcast. Check out my inspired videos and blogs and more at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, that's johnolearyinspires.com. You can check out links to Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram there as well. Our Live Inspired movement is growing, my friends. It's an honor to share these inspirational thoughts and challenges with you throughout the week. So take a moment before you listen to your uh, favorite podcast and open up these social platforms. Connect with me there. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com. My friends, today I am thrilled to have with us on the show Mr. Kurt Steinhorst. I have shared the stage with Kurt multiple times, and each time I've been grateful to get new tips to better cut distraction and refocus what he calls our most precious resource. You ready for it? On today's episode, Kurt will do exactly this and discuss his brand new book that will be released next week. Can I have your attention? Inspiring better work habits, refocusing your team, and getting stuff done in the constantly connected workplace. My friends, it is not possible to leave today's episode without a few tips on how to better do your work, connect with people you love, and live your most inspired life. I can't wait to share with you our newest friends, so buckle up and welcome to the Live Inspire community, my buddy, Kurt Steinhorst. Thanks for having me, John. Really excited to be here. Well, not only are you here, but you are live and in studio. You're from Dallas, Texas. For the folks that may not know you, they may not know your brand, they may not know about your family, give us a quick snapshot of your life today. Well, I work and study and research and speak and consult on the topic of how in the world can we focus with all of the distractions coming at us. Uh, More specifically, how do we manage communication technology? How do we make sure we're not always completely addicted to our phones, but on the other side, not be unrealistic about how awesome they are. That's right. These podcasts are awesome, man. That's right. And when you're not working, what do you like to do? Well, I I have a wife who is the definitely the definition of the better half. Uh, she entered into an unfair agreement. And <laughs> she said for better or for worse. And then uh, I proceeded to have be on the road 150 days a year. So uh, she manages the house. She's a rock star. And then two kids. I have a uh, nearly three-year-old who is a spitting image of me, which is dangerous and scary, and I have to call my parents often to apologize. And then and, uh, one that's eight months old that is um, to be determined. Yes. He's opinionated. What, what's the best part about being a dad so far? You know, well, the the, the emotional feeling, I, I would say, on this side is there's nothing better uh, than being on the road. This is the one thing that makes me enjoy the road 
when I get to walk in the door. Mm. And uh, always one of two things happens with Rand, <laughs> the older one. He screams daddy and either runs directly to me and gives me the biggest hug, which is officially the high point of the week, or he screams daddy and then runs in the opposite direction, <laughs> knowing that dad's going to chase him down. So uh, truly just to be able to see um, life forming and ideas connecting and what it means to care for someone so overwhelmingly is is like an experience I just, I never possibly could have understood. You know, I was very aware of dirty diapers before I had kids and I was very aware of nobody sleeping, but I sometimes think that we forget about the overwhelming joy that comes with it. Mm. Well said. And uh, in full transparency, not only are Kurt and I on this podcast together, but we are friends. Mm -hmm. I've heard him speak numerous times. He's heard me speak a few times. I think so highly of your work, and I want to get into that work. But I want to get into it, Kurt, kind of in an unusual manner by taking a step way back. So not talking about six months ago or a year ago, but where'd you grow up, man? I I don't even know that. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a suburb of Dallas. I was sure I was never going to go back, and then I keep ha- having things pulling me back. Uh, I, it's fun, and I really appreciate you starting here because um, uh, in a lot of ways, I am the product, and any success I've had uh, is the product of a family that was uniquely um, healthy and loving. I grew up in this environment where parents did what people say they is not possible, and I only spotlight this because, you know, I think, and I'm so inspired by stories that start in hardship, but ultimately I think we all want to have a story that starts in beauty and it creates an, a possibility for people that otherwise wouldn't have it. And so my parents never yelled at each other. They were somehow capable of towing the line of expecting performance from me, but not needing it, not needing me to do that, which is unrealistic. Um, in a world where sports became God to so many people, uh, they said, we're going to we're going to let you play sports. You, I loved sports. I thought I was going to be a professional athlete, but peaked in eighth grade, <laughs> and it wasn't a big peak. <laughs> um, but, you know, let me play, but didn't let it run our lives. So I just grew up in this amazing family in multiple generations of, of really kind and caring people. Not wealthy, but we had what we needed. Um, and, you know, the next big step in the journey would be uh, all the way through school. I, I actually really enjoyed school, uh, even though I had ADD and couldn't pay attention is if you can talk your way out of anything, that's yeah, a skill so works. you learn too. It's going to serve you later on in life. Yeah. Uh, I had a I had a teacher in middle school that pulled me aside and said they thought that I could speak and do debate. And I said, that's what nerds do. Not happening. But I ended up going to a tournament and in seventh grade, I won the city tournament in debate while preparing on my way in the car properly. Hmm. And so it, it really started this journey of uh, somebody in middle school believed in me and and... I became fascinated by how do we use our words to communicate uh, life or death and how do we use our words to really uh, influence and shape the way other people behave and um, how do we make sure we do that for the good reasons. And so that's the... You won this tournament. I'm sure you weren't... I'm assuming you weren't expecting to win on your on your walk in. <laughs> Were you anxious before you started speaking and debating? Yeah, that's one of the funniest things is, is people always think that... It, Someone that they see get up and look like they have lots of confidence when they speak today. Right. Just, you know, they were born that yes. way. No, I still get nervous, and I sh- certainly got nervous back then. And I, I said a lot of ums, uhs, you yes. knows. I said, name a word that didn't actually mean anything, and I'm sure it was in there. 
but <laughs> there was just enough available and enough uh, uh, great coaching and time invested and some natural talent that uh, put some success and really catalyzed me wanting to then reinforce that by working so that I wouldn't any longer be the guy that actually peaked in eighth grade. Whether you're in eighth grade speaking yes. or you are a bit more experienced in your age speaking, uh, I would imagine we still all get anxious. The last time oh. I spoke with you two years ago, we were in Phoenix, I believe. Mm-hmm. I followed you. And uh, while you were speaking, I was kind of uh, angry because I'm like, I cannot believe I have to follow this this guy because <laughs> you were so articulate and on point. And it made my anxiety just skyrocket. That's me. And I'm, I'm just being honest, man. I've spoken 1,200 times or more live. How do How do you... How do you get the butterflies to fly in formation? That's yeah. Well, the only thing you should know is the reason that I went first is because I <laughs> I told them that I was not going to speak after you, uh, because you know the emotional story that you have and the power of your message. I wanted to be able to I, I wanted to be able to enjoy it rather than spend the time angry at you for <laughs> inspiring anyone else. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm a big believer, and this actually plays into the decisions we make related to focus as well, that that we are in many ways the product of the, the, the narratives we choose to pay attention to and we choose to selectively ignore. And when it comes to overcoming anxiety, because it's going to be there, there's a visceral biological reason nobody it's not safe in the jungle to be to have hundreds of eyes staring at you. This is your body will tell you that you should go into freeze fight or flight mode. Uh, but we can take that, take back that narrative. And so I've been very intentional in saying, I, I target a few phrases that I have really on the back burner that anytime I start to feel the anxiety move up, that I say to myself. So uh, one of them is real practical. My kids don't care. <laughs> like I, It's this warm feeling of, I'm going to leave here and these people are going to um, my kid won't care when I walk in the door how well or bad I did. He is not impressed at all. And another one is is literally saying, I can help these people. The reason I get to speak and I love to speak as a part of what we do is because I do believe that there's unique power in the spoken word. And I think you can look at a large number of people and ask them when they saw a real rapid change. And for so many of us, including myself, it, it really came down to hearing a message that profoundly moved us. And then, you know, taking the things that to reinforce it, obviously alone, it doesn't work. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this reshifting from it's about me to it's about them and I can help them and they don't need me to be perfect. These are things that I say. So, you know, it comes down to, do I have available to me a better narrative at the moments when my body could cause me to want to, um, flee or to perform in a way that doesn't actually help any of us get where mm. we need to go. Helpful as men, ladies, business owners, nurses, educators, yeah. also helpful in eighth grade. You, you, uh, you're successful as a kid. You go on to high school. What was high school like for you? High school was fun. You know, I, I've always been ultra social. And so I, living in this area that I lived in Dallas, in, in Plano specifically, we had a really awesome academic experience. So I got the combination of being able to really be in front of teachers that really pushed us academically to to achieve. And so I felt like I had a good academic background, but socially it was really, really some of the most fun 
uh, times of my life kind of formed a foundation of what it means to navigate the social world. There's a, Do we need to have your family tune this part yeah, off? Like, no should no we doubt. go in and fast forward about three minutes? <laughs> the, yeah, that's funny you say that. We all have our moments that, that we would look back and say, wow, I wish I, would, I wish I wasn't 17 when I was 17. I wish I was 35. But I was 17. I made it out. And I had a really fun time through it. Uh, the, the most fun thing is I'll never forget. I was I just graduated high school and I'm I tell my parents that I don't think life can get any better. And <laughs> <laughs> they said, just wait. And it is interesting. I'm not a believer that every life stage is better. I think that we just enjoy the beauty where we are. But uh, it really has been that way. I've, I haven't had a season of life that I didn't think man, this was one I would do again if I didn't mm-hmm. have to lose what I'm doing now. You uh, not only enjoyed the season in high school, apparently you thrived during that season in college. I understand you were president of, was it Texas? I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. You tell me. I, I, I had the chance one year to serve as president of my class at Texas A&M University. Texas A&M. Giggle. Okay. Whoop. <laughs> Sorry about that for everyone who's not an Aggie. Yeah, it was it was really a fun, fun experience. The, the chance to represent and to be in front of leadership on behalf of the student body was a very interesting ch- chance to grow as a speaker, a communicator, learn what it means to uh, work with people in different spheres of life, mm-hmm. including alumni, former students. And uh, yeah, I, I joke that that was probably a moment that that I, I don't know that I'll have another one like it because it was the first time that I was on a, a larger stage and was thrust into a leadership role. But I will say, here's what's really interesting on the other side of that. I will never forget when my term came to an end, the night that that happened, and there was this dark night of loss. Well, who am I now? You know, I was, I was cool on a very tiny pond. <laughs> I was known in a very small pond that felt very large. Um, and now I had, to, I had to figure out what identity looked like outside of some external accomplishment. And that's, that's a real important moment for me as I look back that all of a sudden I had to make sure that I was not tying who I was, even though I, had, I was a person of faith mm-hmm. and I already believed in things that made me a part of a bigger story. But the real truth is I had allowed and thought that achieving something on the outside would be what I needed in order to get validation, in order to be thought of and, and to internally believe that I was successful and performing. And so I learned that lesson early enough that it helped me not shape uh, my direction and allow myself not to just be chasing whatever the world um, told me I should do. You know, Kurt, the, uh, the idea of who am I now is something that we all struggle with during various seasons. So whether it's grade school, high school, college, you were the best shortstop of all time in fifth grade, and now you're in the middle school and you're number three on the bench. Or uh, when you get a great sales job and then you realize, you know what, I'm not as great compared to everybody else. I mean, the reality is we're continually throughout our lives asking ourselves, well, who am I now? Now that the season has come to its appropriate or a painful end, who am I now? So what did you learn about yourself during that time and how can we also grab on to some of those ideas those tools to apply as we discern who we are in our lives now yeah fundamentally i would i would say that i learned that it is really easy to and dangerous to seek something external as 
the fundamental in terms of what we define ourselves as. Uh, now, here's the other side, though. There's also this self-esteem movement that basically says you don't have to be anything. You don't have to do anything. You're awesome. <laughs> and, and that's just as dangerous because we actually do need a little bit of discontent in what our current life looks like in order to fuel performance. We just have to, just like all things live in tension, it feels like on the one side, we can risk being someone that allows our entire life to be d defined by something that is happening that is not going to be happening in a future date. Uh, in fact, I had a chance to work with a number of athletes on speaking, and you can see some of this happen. Not all of them. There's the difference between this community of athletes that, that thrive the next stage and then those that, you know, might occasionally do an appearance but really do nothing for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And it's like they've, they've gotten stuck. That's who they are. Um, but then on the other side, we have to... We don't want to be someone that um, I had an employee that, that that was wonderful. You just have to ask the person, but unfortunately, they hadn't. They weren't actually doing their job. And any assault on you know, Carol Dweck calls this the fixed mindset. Any assault hmm. on uh, the core that we are excellent by our nature is actually uh, something that we then we we halt. So if it's hard, we'll stop because that assaults that idea. And, and what we really instead have to do is say. I don't like who I am right now. I don't like this. This thing is not what I want to be. I'm going to, I'm going to do the things to become really good at my job. So it's that tight balance that's hard, but um, one of the, the, the most important tensions we should walk through for, for, you know, moving forward. Best job you've had since graduating college besides the one you're currently doing. That's cheating. Uh, you know, man, I'm, I'm going to kind of cheat here and say that it was, it was the first business I started was helping people with speaking. And it was because I'd been in, actually I'll answer this more fairly because I was going to cheat and say it was the former business that is still going, but not what I focus on. I had a job where I was an agent at a speaker's bureau and I got a chance to learn and sit underneath. Uh, the, the interesting thing about a speaker bureau, and a lot of people don't even know what it is, but it's where people that are well-known and have a big platform get booked for speeches. Well, as an agent, we're booking all sorts of anyone and everyone and basically serving as a real estate agent for mm -hmm. that business. So that means I, my job was to get to know the most fascinating people in the world and to hear their story, to listen to them speak, and to be able to then communicate what those ideas were to people that were interested. Mm. And so I basically, you know, I spent years upon years upon years in school, and I don't think any of that had as good of an education as the two year, three years I spent basically in a deep digestion of um, great content that was seen as really valuable in the market and was really helpful for people. So that was really Looking back on that, I know it's been a little while, was there one guy, one gal, one presenter that you worked with where, where not only were they phenomenal on stage, but their mindset and heart was as beautiful offstage, and that's why you look at them as being one of your absolute favorites? You know, that I, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to give a couple okay. for different reasons. So Brian <clears throat> Flanagan was Zig Ziglar's right-hand man, and he was a personal mentor that actually encouraged me in the business. And Brian still speaks, and he's just one of the good guys. And so, uh, in fact, he's one of the good guys at such a level that you don't know him as well as you should because he always was helping others. <laughs> so Brian's a guy that I look up to. Back then, you know, one that I, I know was actually a really cool opportunity. Mark Thompson is a Stanford guy, and he was the co-author on uh, Jim Collins' book. Or the, actually, he was, the, uh, he was the sequel, Success Built to Last, and has done several things since then. 
has an amazing resume, but he's a guy that was just more kind off than on and great on stage. And uh, why, why I say it kind of comes full circle as I have this book project I'm working on. I reached out to Mark and just said, hey, would you help me look at it and tell me if I'm crazy? Do you think it's good? And, you know, 15 years later, <laughs> and we stayed in occasional touch, but not close touch. It was the same Mark. You know, he sent this long, encouraging email that was a reminder of the importance of the work, um, how encouraged he was, and, and, and just a list of things he wanted to do to help. He gains nothing from that. He's a good one. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and uh, I know that you have that same impact on those that you serve as a speaker, as a trainer, coach, leader, and now as a writer. You, you kind of whispered this out, but let's yell it a little bit, little bit more uh, articulately and clearly. You have a book project that you are working on and getting ready to launch here shortly. When does the book come out? Uh, the book comes out October 9th. Okay. Which is soon. Very soon and really exciting. And as someone who's done a book project yourself, you know that the result is often different than what it took to put it together. It's just, it's, it's been a really um, fun, challenging, difficult process. Yes. And a good one because the labor makes you enjoy the reward. Well, maybe we'll do a special podcast sometime just on writing and yeah. getting to the finish line, which by the way, is just the starting line. It turns out with book sales, That's right. but, um, this podcast is more focused on life, waking up from accidental living and choosing to live inspired, which I really think your book centers on. So uh, it's not only your book, it's your life at this point. T- t- tell our listeners a little bit more about the book and a little yeah. bit more about uh, about what you've learned and the journey to producing it. Yeah, the book is called Can I Have Your Attention? And then the subtitle is Inspiring Better Work Habits, Focusing Your Team and Getting Stuff Done in the Constantly Connected Workplace. The, the aim of the book is primarily for leaders, and there is a business focus, but it's certainly not meant to be distinct to business alone. What's interesting about this issue around distraction is, you know, I could give you the newest stats on just how distracted we are. We're, you know, more often than every six minutes, we're checking our phones. We're in fact, Go ahead and brag on some of this. I, I, I think we, we kind of vaguely get that we're distracted. And then sometimes you hear it spelled out and you're like, well, that's not me. Yeah, Un- unless you actually have a camera following you and then you realize, my gosh, I'm one of them. Yeah, I'm one of those totally. stats. So go ahead and throw out some of the stats on how distracted we are, Kurt. Yeah. So we check our phones uh, more often than every six minutes. Like the last stat that was measured on that was around that number, but it's gotten worse. We are, uh, in fact, there's like no sphere that it isn't impacted. So at home, those of us in relationships spend 60% more time connected to digital media than in conversation with our spouse. Uh, we are four out of five people when on the road, check their phone while driving mm. in some, at some point. Like, the busiest hours of Facebook are between 1 and 3 p.m., which incidentally happens to be right in the middle of the workday. And 6% of online purchases, retail purchases, occur during working hours. Uh, costs to the economy in what we call cyber loafing, which depending on the industry is anywhere from an hour and a half on average to over four hours on average spent just loafing around looking for the end of the internet. Um, you know, it, and, and it just keeps going is really what we're looking at. The, the volume and the amount of time we're spending connected has hit a fever pitch. You know, it's, it's 
difficult, but I'm sure we could put a number on it, what it costs businesses or business owners or employees. Can you give us a handle on what it costs in relationships and what it costs our kids and what it costs our marriages and partnerships and yeah, vibrancy, and, really? Yeah, and, and that's a that's the more fundamental question. And a lot of times we use statistics to replace what we know and feel but want to deny. And at its core, what we're looking at is the dispersion of our most precious resource, which is our attention. We have the ability to only focus on a very small number of things in the given time that we have. And what we're seeing is it divided more and more by having um, whatever our brain is wired to say, this would feel good at this moment, and this can give us a dopamine hit, a neuro the neurotransmitter that makes us happy, at the cost of difficult but life-giving um, relationship. And so I'm, I want to be very clear on two things. The first one is it's really easy to expose the problem, but there's very few books that are talking about solutions. And then two, um, it's, it's really easy to s try to make technology the problem and try to create this like alternative universe that no one yeah. lives in where everyone needs to get off social media, everyone needs to uh, throw your phone away, put it in the trash, go back to the 80s big box phone, like do whatever. It, and, and neither of those are really good solutions because technology gives us a lot of wonderful things. I'm in St. Louis today, which is awesome. But like last week, I was in Spain for work. I wish it was for personal. But uh, I got to talk to my kids. Like I tucked my kid in bed on FaceTime because of face because mm -hmm. of FaceTime. So this is a really good thing. But what technology allows us to do is it allows us to have access to everything that we were never made to resist. Hmm. And it allows us to insulate ourselves from any of the difficulties or complexities of relationship that both create thriving but also create inconvenience. So let, let, those are two separate pieces. Right. And there's a lot in each. Can you one by one unpack them and explain what you're really saying to us? Because I think each one of us, I read an article over the weekend, Kurt, right on time, that many people are now listening to podcasts, ladies and gentlemen, following John O'Leary, Live Inspired, at two, three, or even five times the speed, yep. so they can listen to as much stuff as quite, it's craziness. We can only jam so much into our days. Yep. So un unpack, if you don't mind, the, the two points you just made. Yeah, so... Uh, I'll start with the latter, the relational cost, because that's where you were. That, that's where we were first. So, here's what's happening at its core: we all have an associative reward with our phones. So, study done by B.F. Skinner, early 20th century. He's like the one of the most important psychologists of the 20th century. Uh, they have rats hooked up to uh to or the rats that are in cages, and one group, whenever they want food, they hit a lever, and they what happens with that group is whenever they're hungry, they hit the lever, but this other group had a lever that would sometimes give them food and sometimes not, and it, there was no predictability. And that group died uh, just standing at the lever all day long, hitting it. And it's called intermittent reinforcement. That when we don't know if something exciting is going to be there, but it could be because what's been there in the past, it's the uncertainty that actually drives us to it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like our phones, at some point we got a great email, we got an unexpected message on Facebook, whatever, and now it's a place we can go. And it can actually give us dopamine whether or not that thing is going to be there when we're hoping it's there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but here's the problem. Okay, so that's part one. Part two is that we're wired to want to send and receive messages. Digital allows us to send and receive messages, 
without having to have any inconvenience. We get to control the experience. So digital is really good for efficiency, and it's really good for uh, allowing us to send a message and then not have to be beholden to it. So let's not kid ourselves. Having to sit by a phone hours waiting for when that call could come in is really inconvenient. You know, um, on the other hand, the way we have emotional empathy, the way that we build relationship involves the way the brain uses something called mirror neurons. We literally, I see you smile, my brain interprets that as my own smile. Hmm. And now we build rapport. Uh, I say something offensive to you, like, oh, you look bad in that those clothes. You get offended. Now I learn I never say that. Never yeah. say that. Like you're, you look great in those clothes. Well, thank you. Great. Like well, and this is how we um, manage healthy relationships. This is how we have better ways of handling conflict. When I'm in front of a computer, it's not just that I'm being a jerk. And why don't you say it to my face? You're biologically wired not to want to say it to their face, and to have to find more healthy ways of having crucial conversations. So this isn't the point of our conversation. We want to start talking about yeah. solutions in 30 seconds. <laughs> But in the 29 seconds as we tick toward that, why is it that the internet provides such a beautiful place for bullies to troll and to abuse and to belittle whomever? I don't even yeah. want to name drop right now, but it's almost anyone with any type of following. These folks love to abuse them. What, what is that really all about? It's complex, but to simplify it, what's happening is you don't when you don't see the voice and the facial expressions of the person that you're having to communicate with, you don't bear the consequences that your brain was made to bear to keep you from acting that way. And that's not a matter of like setting policy. It's not mm. going to change. Uh, it's a matter of making, finding ways for us to actually uh, engage the communities that we're in, be present in the communities we're in. And uh, by being together, there's a study that shows just five days away at camp with no technology, your empathy levels go back up. Mm. And so really it's not a matter of saying we're never going to be connected it's a matter of saying we're not going to allow the digital to um, s push us away from intentional moments with our families. And, and that's really where we start moving towards solutions. So let's, let's talk about some of the solutions, Kurt. Fundamentally, technology is an access issue. Uh, in fact, Martin Heidegger, a philosopher, says that it's the sum technology, the essence of it is the summoning of everything into assured availability, meaning that we have everything we want at our fingertips. That's awesome. Uh, you put that in context, though, over the course of history, and we're talking about something that is just absolutely unprecedented. To reconnect back, it really starts with setting up barriers to that access at intentional moments. And so a really short, simple question I would have is, uh, for every sphere of your life that is really important, like that you really care about, have you intentionally set up a reasonable time to be disconnected and for people not to have easy access to you. Um, a lot of the work I do is with businesses and leaders. And there's been this, uh, what makes it hard in, in business is that so many of the leadership principles that have defined leadership um, actually exacerbate this problem today. <laughs> Agreed. You know, and that's where we start to really have issues because for instance, a leader's always been taught he should be available. You know, open door policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've all heard Murphy's Law. I say Murphy's Law of Attention is if they can reach you, they will. Mm -hmm. And so we have an open door policy because that's what a good leader does. And now the leader has hundreds of inputs at them all the time. And what does it do? It eliminates the one thing that makes them good at leadership, which is space to process, prioritize, um, and create. And so it's not spending all day long disconnected. And I think that's really what we have to make sure we're real balanced on. Hey, 
be connected. Uh, enjoy Candy Crush. Yes. Look at Twitter. But select intentional times and intentional spaces where we say during these times and spaces, we are going to pull away and set up the systems and boundaries so that we can't get to the things outside. Individual or is there a best practice of a certain amount of time with a certain amount of frequency? You know, that's a great question. I, there are. We love simplicity, right? Yeah. So I should what I should do is I could make a killing if I just said these are the four rules. The problem is we live in complexity and every role is different. So what I do is we have vault sessions. We talk about saving our most precious resource, which is our attention. You know, in an, in an information-rich world, that leads to a poverty of attention. <laughs> you got more coming at you. The one thing you don't have is your attention. And so we do vaults. I do two 40-minute sessions, typically, depending on travel and speaking and things like that. Uh, Paul, who's the COO, he, his job is to make everyone else in the organization efficient, which means that he does need to be available. That's part of his job. So he intentionally sets aside time when others aren't in the office to be able to step back, prioritize, think, and process. Really what he means is he just waits for when I leave because <laughs> I'm the one that causes all his problems. When you are at home, a dad, a husband, uh, a son, friend, neighbor, rake leafer, yep. you, know, you, you do all the stuff of life. Is there a set amount of time that you're, when you come in the door, what, what, what's your normal evening look like and what's your morning look like, Kurt? Yeah, great question. Uh, we used to do 7 to 9 p.m., no phones, but the rule was that if someone texted you, you could reply <laughs> because we wanted to be realistic. But then we had kids and that ruined that. So what we do now is I, I basically put my phone down and hide my phone uh, when I walk in the door and then until we go as on, on a family walk where we don't bring our phones. And then when we have dinner, sometimes one of us will have our phone, like especially if we're out. Mm -hmm. Uh, but otherwise, we put them both to chargers and we get rid of them. So basically, it's from the time I walk in the door until we're moving the kids towards getting ready for bed. And then from then on, that's the thing about technology. It's awesome. So we usually process and have a little bit of a discussion. And then we'll flip on TV and I'll have my phone out and I'll reply to some emails and do all the searching to mm -hmm. the end of the Internet that's available to me. What are the benefits when you are living in flow and you are appropriately online, but also appropriately disconnected, yeah. what, do you, what do you find is, through your research as some of the benefits that will actually free me and free our followers and listeners to unplug tonight and to plug back into relationship and nature and life? Yeah, the, the hardest thing about digital connectivity is that uh, it does feel good. And it makes us have what we think we need. But I think we've all had that moment. There, I, I can give you statistics on two-thirds of people going to Facebook and feeling worse than when they leave. <laughs> but we felt that like, ugh. Like, I've now changed Why don't you say that again just so we, we hear it? Because I, I, I think we have read that and we don't believe it. Yeah, so t totally. say the stat again and tell us why you think that is true. Yeah, two-thirds of people have, uh, in the following in, in the week have gone to Facebook and they've left in, noticeably feeling worse than when they got there. Uh, but there was that one time that something really cool happened, and so we're, we're wired to want to go back to it. But this is really evidence of the fact that we're not good at choosing behaviors that will actually lead to what it is we think we want, which is we want to be happy. We want to we have connections that are deep, but at any moment, that requires a type of work that we are also made to resist. Mm. <laughs> and so th what we have to do is we have to set systems in place and also be realistic, you know. So really, you know, stepping back a step earlier in the in the book and in the work that we do, we always want to start with the question of what is a healthy model for thinking about focus. 
because we start to get to really practical solutions without really understanding what's in play. And and on the one side, we'll see people that live in this constant, like the uh, Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins, one man band doing everything at once, feeling like we're proud to be multitaskers that mm-hmm. we can hit, even though it's a not we're not capable. Um, on the other side, we we then we we hear multitasking is a myth. And we're going to focus, and then we set unreasonable boundaries for us, or unreasonable expectations for us, and we feel guilty. We'll hear a speaker that, you know, productivity guru that woke up at 5 a.m. Uh, doesn't need to eat food because food gets in the way of the productivity, you know. And and we get to about 8 a.m. and we're hungry and irritable, and, and everyone hates us because we hate everyone. And then we're depressed, and we go back to doing what we're supposed to do. Um, and so me having ADD, what I say is, is we have to be, it's not a question of always or nothing. It's a question of whether we're being intentional and proactive or whether we're allowing the world to dictate what gets our attention. Mm. You know, is our inbox going to be the thing, which is a, a to-do list dictated by other people? Is, um, is our base wirings of, on Facebook, which gives us a level of connectivity but lets us avoid deep relationships, are we going to let these things actually, are we going to actually let them drive us? And, and that's the thing that we have to start saying is, no, I'm going to be among the few. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be among those that equip myself to be realistic, intentional, and proactive in my decisions. So I, I love it individually. I, I understand how we can do this for our kids, even if it's hard, even if it's unpopular. Help me understand, and it's really not for me specifically, but it's for our listeners and for my friends who are tuning in, when the spouse or the partner or the coworker doesn't see eye to eye with these ideas, and every time you're with that person, they're looking down, and every time you have a start opening up your heart, their pocket rings, and they turn away from you. Yep. How, how do you how do you get on the same page, in particular, in a partnership? That's that's really 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 good as a question. It's not easy. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? There's a few things that we have to always be aware of when we start having these types of conversations about our technology. Uh, Layer one is that we have to always start by saying we understand why we're all drawn to it. You know, this is, it makes, if we, look, if you understand the science, which is fascinating and interesting and also scary, you'll understand that there's a reason all of us are drawn to it. Mm. Um, and, And shame is a really bad, I know that you're obviously friends with, uh, Brene Brown, and she's the best. It's a really bad motivator. And so uh, entering into these discussions with grace and kindness and saying, hey, I want to just figure out how we can get more of what we want while enjoying that stuff, um, rather than like, you just keep looking at your phone, you know, and now I'm angry at you. Mm-hmm. So th- that's number one. And, and, and number two, I would say the conversation needs to happen at a time that isn't at that heated moment. Um, so what we talk about often in organizations is setting up a communication compact discussion because we'll talk about everything in life except how we want to communicate with each other. And so this is just saying, hey, guys, I want to set a dis- I want to set up with the whole family or the team. And I want to I want to actually ask questions about, like, how do we want to engage each other? Like, what are our community? How do we want to communicate? Mm-hmm. Like, because if I set a rule as dad, as my kids get older, they're a little too young. And say, hey, you get home from school, no, no phone, period. Well, you know, all of their friends might be on Snapchat and they might be live chilling or whatever that is. <laughs> and, and it misses a chance for community in a weird way that doesn't make sense to me. How do I let him have that while also saying we're not going to let it be the thing that, that 
keeps our family from being deep. And these are discussions that can only happen when we're safe and when we're intentional outside mm. of the heated conflict moment. Any resources that you are providing as this book launches? I know it's going to do extraordinarily well, but is there a site that people can go to or is there a place where we can learn more? Yeah. So our organization, the consultancy, is called Focus Wise. It's pretty simple. How do we make wise decisions with focus? So we have a – It'll on the front, it'll have this, but focuswise.com. And then if you back, backslash C-I-H-Y-A, can I have your attention? And we are producing – just a slew of resources from videos for every section because uh, this the book is actually designed to say how does how does every aspect of work need to be rethought from a leadership standpoint how do we rethink the way we're commu- setting up our communication systems how do we rethink our space how do we rethink the way that we're handling and managing tasks and delineating and delegating mm-hmm. and so but there's a lot to it. So there's a lot going to be going to be a lot of resources on that in this particular category under the section on communication. And you don't have to have the book to do this. I want it to be a resource. Uh, we even have a discussion guide. So literally, these are discussions, questions we can ask as a group. Awesome. And make it easy. Yeah. When we put down that book and close it, put it back on the bookshelf or hand it on to a friend, what, what, what do you hope is the one lesson that we take away as a reader? My hope is that, you know, it's you, you write 300 pages and try to <laughs> boil it down, but it's a really good question. Fundamentally, I want people to rethink the way that they're managing their own attention and the, the, the attention resource of the people that they are in, in leadership over. Uh, that would be a worthy takeaway, Kurt Steinhorst. As you know, I mentioned this to you on the front side of our conversation. Every guest we've ever had in studio is invited to walk the gauntlet between seven questions. These are layups, man. You're going to crush them. Are you prepared? Definitely not. Okay. Good. Here we go. Let the butterflies. Low. That's yeah. right. Butterflies information number one. Kurt, what's the best book you've ever read? The best book I've ever read. This tells you I really... I, I intentionally didn't want because I wanted to get like the honest answer. You know, <laughs> my my favorite book was East of Eden, uh, which is John Steinbeck. And it's about the complexity of life told through an, a fascinating story. And And I would say that that book had, has a, had a profound impact just on the way I thought about things um, from a, from a increase of, in a shift in ter- in my values and the way I thought about the world. You know, this was years ago, but there was a book called Blue Like Jazz. Yeah, that's a good book. That I really liked. And, you know, I, I liked that it offered a way of thinking about life that provided um, patience with ourself, mm-hmm. honest vulnerability, uh, but also like an expectation of trying to become better. Yeah. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, Kurt, with millions. What would you do with this newfound wealth? This is actually one of the things that that makes me most excited because I had this discussion with my wife recently. What if we won the lottery? We don't play the lottery, so it's not likely. And the interesting thing is I don't think I would do anything different. I, I am so um, passionate about the work that we get to do that it's not driven by money. Mm-hmm. Now, 
what would be different is I'd probably take a vacation and I would definitely hire more staff so that we felt we were better equipped yes. rather than at times overwhelmed. Perfect. If your house caught fire, your two babies, your bride, your animals are all out, all living things are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item that really does matter to you, what would you grab? My grandfather, whose name I take and whose personality I have, he passed away at Parkinson's a few years ago. He carved animals and like literally painted birds. And for every one of his grandkids' 12th birthday, he would carve an animal of their choice. Hmm. And so I own a longhorn that is absolutely gorgeous, which is ironic because as an Aggie, I hate longhorns, <laughs> but it is my most valuable possession. You have a picture of it? I, you know, I do, and I can show you. I, so we will also have that on our uh, on our website because I want to make sure folks are yep. not only checking out your stuff, your site, but also checking out your heart. That's totally. a great story. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to sit on that bench with? Hmm. Wow. You know, that is a great question. I am fascinated by Elon Musk. <laughs> his mind, his approach toward business, his, his uh, way of approaching and, and dreaming big, I think is just really interesting. And now, you know, you, you back it up and go over the scope of all of history. There's definitely some bigger names, you know. <laughs> Jesus, Mother Teresa, the Apostle Paul, like it, name someone that has changed the world. I'm very interested in all of those. But, yes. you know, I, I think during this lifetime, I, I, I'm as an entrepreneur, I'm uh, very much a fast fan of yeah. other great entrepreneurs. Awesome. Yeah. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Hmm. The... You know, I mentioned earlier that I have a really good family. And and so in a lot of ways, I feel like that there was no single piece of advice, but it was just this constant, this constant refining and repositioning of, of advice. And so uh, one that I know that has been really like resonating with me recently is uh, the reminder towards as I parent that what my kids need to learn is wisdom not rules. Hmm. And a real good friend just said, you know, you want your kids to be wise. You don't want them to be obedient. And so uh, in terms of the last, you know, three, four years, that's probably been the one that I find myself going back to and asking how do we create wisdom um, for kids and for us. It even is, you know, the basis of the business. Well, we have half that going for us in our O'Leary family. There is a little obedience at home. So uh, now we're just praying (laughs) for wisdom. All right, man, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Take a break. Relax. You know, it's it's going to be okay. She isn't that cool anyways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final question. You, you, you ran the gauntlet. We made it to the finish line. It has been said, Kurt Steinhurst, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? That he gave his life and his resources to helping other people 
become healthier and more whole. Mm. Kurt Steinhorst, friend of John O'Leary, great man, phenomenal presenter, new, soon-to-be, best-selling author. We are honored to have you in studio with us today. Well, truly the pleasure's mine and the honor's mine. I, I couldn't be more grateful for the time together. My friends, that was Kurt Steinhurst. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, I told you Kurt would be offering some amazing tips on how to better leverage your attention, right? Maybe my favorite was his recommendation for talking with your significant others and coworkers about creating intentional time for tech. You know, and I also loved the uh, the notion of the longhorn, that carved wooden longhorn his grandfather made him for his 12th birthday. Very special. My friends, to get all my favorite moments, check out the show notes at com. Again, that is com. If you haven't yet, please rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Please encourage your friends, your family, your coworkers to check it out also. As always, I'll look forward to joining you for future episodes and our next guest next Thursday morning. So for this time, and until next time, this is your day. Live inspired.